The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Tuesday, October 4th, 2016. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Vanity Fair not endorsing Donald Trump. Again, repeat, Vanity Fair not down with the candidate who self-describedly uses the best words. Now, Walter Isaacson in a tweet says, Graydon Carter's piece should not be missed. The editor of Vanity Fair takes out two pages, maybe more, depending on your layout in the front of the magazine, to rip apart Donald Trump. It starts like this. In 1987, Michael Kelly, later a celebrated editor, but at the time a reporter for the Baltimore Sun, took Fawn Hall as his guest to the White House Correspondents Association dinner. Thus began a tradition of media companies prowling the nether regions of their coverage to come up with the tabloid oddity of the moment for their novelty guest. In 1983, I took Donald Trump. Novelty guests don't think they're novelty guests. They just think they're guests. And he goes on to talk about what Donald Trump did at the dinner. Namely, he sat next to a supermodel, reduced her to near tears, spending his entire time, quote, saying the tits and legs of other female guests and asking how they measured up to those of other women. Now, this reminded me of an episode of Family Ties, wherein Skippy Handelman was asked to join a fraternity, only it was a mockery. They never really wanted Skippy in their fraternity. This was a stunt known as the Big Stooge. And Graydon turned Donald that day into the Big Stooge. Graydon goes on in his denunciation of Mr. Trump by laying out a case of what a short-fingered vulgarian, which was Graydon Carter's coinage as editor of Spy, a vulgarian that Donald Trump is. Time and time again, he came across Donald Trump. And it would seem that Donald Trump extended a hand or at least an olive branch, which Graydon Carter repeatedly accepted. Carter writes, Trump invited me to two of his weddings. I went to the Marla Maples one. He sent me a couple of Trump ties. They were basic blue and basic red, and they were stiff as a child's sword. He sent me Trump vodka. He invited me to join him for a dinner at Mar-a-Lago. We had surf and turf, a dish I hadn't eaten in 20 years. So Graydon Carter accepted Donald Trump's gifts, ate Donald Trump's food, but continued to mock Donald Trump, to take his largesse, or at least his neediness, turn it on its head, and use it as a weapon. I guess you could say that Graydon Carter was being a provocateur, insouciant, but not necessarily, what's the word for it, nice? I guess he doesn't have to be nice. Although, you could argue that coming into contact again and again with this horrible person, perhaps the ethical thing would be to break off contact with him. It is clear to me that Graydon Carter made a sport of Trump, that he tortured Trump, that he teased and tormented Trump. And I suppose such cruelty, when visited upon a figure as vulgar as Trump, has its appeal. Like when a count or duke would tether a bear in the backyard and poke the beast, and perhaps his fellow noblemen would laugh at the stupid animal's travails. But in doing so, what was Carter doing? Was he striking a blow for fairness or honesty or anything high-minded? Because Trump was rich and vulgar, he was fair game. But what Carter's ongoing antics really did do, it seems to me, was give Trump what he needed, his oxygen, attention. And there was Carter, a society swell, laughing at Trump, 
This certainly fueled Trump's sense of righteousness. I'm going to use an overused word that doesn't really have a definition, but how Graydon Carter treated Trump strikes me as something close to elitism. You could argue that Trump deserved it. You could also maybe argue that if Graydon Carter were a bigger man, he would have left it alone. I do not know Graydon Carter. People in my field speak well of his talents or at least are afraid to appear on the bad side of this powerful man in media who could make careers. I do know and very much like Kurt Anderson, Carter's co-founder of Spy Magazine. And Spy Magazine was a fantastic magazine. I give Carter credit for that. And Carter has filled this letter from the editor with great words like, quote, Trump, more than even the most craven politicians or entertainers, is a bottomless reservoir of need and desire for attention. He lives off crowd approval, and at a certain point that will dim as it always does to people like him, and the cameras will turn to some other American novelty. When that attention wanes, he will be left with his press clippings, his dyed hair, his fake tan, and those tiny, tiny fingers. That's a good jibe, but the unstated and to me clear inference in all of this is that Graydon Carter, in some small part, helped create the creature who threatens us today. In the spiel today, I will discuss Senate races. They're debating in key Senate races. They're also debating tonight on the vice presidential stage. And uh, I wanted to note that there will be a rapid response in this, your gist feed at around, I don't know, one, two in the morning, depends on when the muse hits me. But first, I return to my homeland, or at least talk to someone who did, to Long Island, a land of possible Trump support and more troublingly, a little bit of ignorance. Anxiety can mean a lot of things. I'm anxious for this movie to start. I'm anxious if she'll say yes to me on a date. Wait, do, do people even say yes? It's a swipe, right? Uh, I'm, I'm anxious about getting into college. I'm anxious about making my mortgage payment. In fact, there's so much anxiety, it's almost as if we're living in, I'll say it, a United States of anxiety. But what's uniting us is in some ways dividing us because what WNYC has done in a podcast series is to take uh, a topic, which is the ascendancy of Donald Trump, to talk about anxiety and to set it in a place, a place I know well, the suburbs of Long Island. Here's our theory. In this election, we're not actually debating America's greatness. We're wrestling with its national identity with the relationship between race and class and citizenship, and the very question of who is an American. And we're doing all of this as we face what have been unquestionably challenging times for everybody. And Arun Venegopal is one of the main voices behind this series. Hello, Arun. How are you? Hey, I'm doing good, Mike. So in the first two, it is very Long Island-y. Is this mainly a Long Island series? This is entirely a mm. Long Island series. Yeah, we actually focus primarily on Suffolk County, which is like sort which, of the second county over. Yeah, the second county up. But I want to back up a little bit. So I think that there is a caricature, and it is true of some Trump supporters, racist, they Maybe we'll admit it, maybe won't. There's the whole alt-right thing. I think what this series wants to get to is the half that's not in the basket of deplorables, if you will, the undeplorable half of the Trump voter. And so far, we've met a couple of them, and they seem like nice people. So 
that was important to humanize the Trump supporter, to make us understand not a terrible person. Let's not put them in the deplorable camp. But the other things that we've been told about the Trump supporter is that they're downwardly mobile white people. And so far, the people I've met in your reports are. They're definitely struggling. Uh, They're not necessarily employed as much as they used to be. Property taxes and other things are really just kind of consuming them. They're on the verge of losing their homes, that kind of thing. You know, uh, this one woman, she's 80, Mrs. Johnson's, I call her, 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 her daughter, Patty, um, and her have been sort of like the prime characters in the first couple of episodes. And this woman who's 80, Mrs. Johnson, she's just um, at her wit's end. How do, she, how, do you, how do you basically cover the property taxes, for instance, you know? And she has a nice home. She's lived for 50 years in Patchaw, you know, very sweet woman. Um, she moved there from Queens in the late 50s when everybody was moving mm-hmm. to Suffolk from Queens or from Brooklyn. There was this huge just kind of like emptying out. White New Yorkers were leaving for the suburbs and huge numbers back then. And she's a very sweet person. But right now she's struggling with this with this problems. Like how do I basically cover my expenses on this tiny fixed income that you have? And so we do want to make sure that we are as as human in our reporting as um, humane um, as we can be. But also we're pretty rigorously, I suppose, um, interrogating the systems. You know, she came um, into these segregated neighborhoods. She might not have gone because it was segregated, but that's, the fact is that that's where she went. And that's a problem. And so we're kind of trying to uh, to look at both aspects. The individuals who are struggling, who are suffering in these, you know, whether it's from property taxes um, or from underemployment, the drug crisis. Yeah, Patty's um, kid, well, yeah. at least one of her sons, has a uh, opioid problem, right? Yeah, so Patty's son did not ever apparently get into opioids himself, but a lot of their friends mm. did. Um, he's but he did clean. have a drug problem. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And now he lives and he works in the city. Um and that's another problem. It's like these young people are not staying around. Right. Especially on Long Island, that's what I find. Like my friends from Westchester will move back to Westchester. But here's the, here's the, the interesting thing, I think. This is a question. This is a real question. This is a question that would make any decent person's heart go out. How do you cover the taxes? How do you keep up the lifestyle? It's not extravagant, but how do you keep on your middle class life? But why is the answer Donald Trump? I'm not even asking why isn't the answer Hillary Clinton, but why isn't it someone else, some other Republican, if that's your worldview? Why is Trump not just, oh, I'll suck it up and vote for him? Why is he so attractive, if that's the question? For some of them, I think that they see that there's some sort of a rupture that has happened. And it's not like he's, you know, he has a policy prescriptions. He's not saying like, you know how we're going to lower property taxes in your part of the, you know, the country. He doesn't even touch the drug epidemic from what I uh, no, he doesn't talk yeah. about these like really kind of granular, wonkish kinds of things, right? But his personality and his um, just his whole tenor is so outsized. I think for some of these people, like, oh, we need somebody as big as that, somebody as bold as that to handle this problem, which is as big as it is. Now, when you go to these people's homes, you're not like, you know, you're not going to, you know, the ghetto. You're not going to like some terrible crumbling, you know, you say like, wow, this is pretty nice. A lot of these neighbors are beautiful. I mean, you go to the South Shore, it's gorgeous. You know, the views you've got. And yet, for the significant population of suburbanites, at least the ones we're encountering, there is something fundamentally that has ruptured. And only somebody who is willing to like go the distance just to bring this hammer to the problem is going to do it. Mrs. Johnson, for instance, you know, she's 80. She's very um, worried about 
what she sees happening, say, in Syria or other parts, you know, like the refugee crisis and stuff like that. But she's like, you know what? Listen, but, I'm sorry. we got to prioritize. But she's not that informed about it either. It doesn't seem – so here's what I would say. If you look at the suburbs of New York – now, there was a poll that came out in Newsweek. I think it was uh, last week. And Nassau is pretty much split, which is really interesting in a lot of ways. Nassau County Republicans used to be – when I took a intro to polyscience – Cook County, which is Chicago, was the epitome of the Democratic machine. And in that political science textbook, the epitome of the Republican machine was Nassau County. Hmm. So it's a historically Republican county, but has gotten less so as the Republican Party has like shifted to the right. And uh, the right is not the best way. It has gotten more moralistic and uh, more what they would call family, family uh, values issues. Suffolk County is now more for Trump than Hillary. They're more Republican. But if you look at Westchester, overwhelmingly more for Hillary than Trump. If you look at the, most of the northern New Jersey suburbs, uh, especially ones without big cities because you can't count them, also more for Hillary. And I think the denominator is not just economic anxiety. They're all feeling it. It's ignorance. It's college education. And the less college education you have, which is just a proxy for information, the more likely you are to vote for Trump. That's a through line as I could see it. Yeah, I, I I don't really have an answer for that. I mean, I think that there are these ring counties. Mm-hmm. Um, the further out you are, yeah, the yeah, further from the right center, right? I mean, and it's, Suffolk is the furthest one out. Yeah. Suffolk is far out. You have counties like Orange and Putnam as well, yes. which are sort of north beyond Westchester. Right. Uh, it's the same thing with Staten Island, which is sort of like the only white county in New York City. And that line, though, is also going further and further down because the top third or so of Staten Island is relatively diverse. What's interesting is what you do see from my reporting on the drug crisis is both Staten Island and Suffolk County and some of those other ring counties I mentioned, they all have very high levels of support for Trump and very high levels of opioid addiction. And And so your theory is that the anxiety, both of those things have similar root causes. Yeah. I mean, the whiteness of the drug epidemic is something that's kind of shocking and hard to make sense of. I think racism actually played its role in that. The fact that um, black people have traditionally, uh, for instance, been a lot, um, found a lot harder to get prescriptions for certain things. You know, doctors don't necessarily trust them when they say, I'm in pain. They're like, yeah, well, we don't want you to start getting addicted. That sort of bias played in a negative way in terms of Uh, Not necessarily in urban, like you don't see Manhattan having this massive levels, like, you know, rich Manhattanites are not having a huge drug crisis, but but definitely- Maybe maybe some uh, ADHD drugs in the prep schools, but yes, there's no, right, exactly. There's no Oxycontin scene that we can really uh, tell like there was cocaine in the 80s. Right. Right. Yeah. But I did speak to one person who told me off the record, he was like, I do think that education has played a role in a weird way in some of these outlying counties in terms of you don't necessarily get the best medical care. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the people are um, more likely to prescribe even years after it became clear that, whoa, this is not something you can just be like giving like a month's dosage for when this person needs two days of, you know, yeah. Oxycontin or whatever. Well, I was thinking root cause is a little blunter than the good answer that you gave, which is when things are desperate, uh, you latch on to pretty bad solutions, either Oxycontin or Donald Trump. They're kind of similar. And they also inject a little bit of dopamine to the pleasure centers of your brain right away. It is amazing that a country which has had this major sort of anti- inequality move in the last few years. And of course, it started on the left and then somehow it gets kind of co-opted oddly um, by the right with this sort of, um, you know, we don't want the elites and the establishment handling it. And yet still you vote in 
or you want to vote in, a billionaire, because he has this level of like, hey, I'm one of you guys. I talk like you. I don't talk like those smarty pants. You know, uh, we're all on the same page here, yeah, you know, yeah. and he can channel his rage. <laughs> but it is also amazing because you like, I mean, the thing is, I think with these communities, they've had it pretty good, you know. Um, for 50, 60, years. And the reason years. their taxes are high are, well, specifically in Suffolk, they'd actually have more Republican leaderships than Democrats. So if you want to blame someone uh, for property taxes there, although the last Suffolk County executive switched parties, ran for governor. Anyway, <laughs> they, they, the reason the property taxes are high is because they have really, really high level of service. It's not yeah. like the taxes weren't getting them anything. Right. So there's a mirror image of the Mitt Romney takers and makers argument. It's like, yes, we'd love to live in this leafy suburb with this, this excellent police force and nice parks, but our taxes are high. What, you want something for nothing? Yeah, exa- I mean, that's the thing. <laughs> I, I mean, you're right. It's exactly that. The property taxes are astronomical. Yeah. I think in Nassau, it's, uh, I saw this in, in uh, Newsday um, yesterday, the average property taxes were something like four and a half times the national median. And yeah. in Suffolk, it's just short of four times. So we're talking seven, like $7,800, $7,700 a year in annual property taxes versus a couple thousand for the average American. It's shockingly high levels of property taxes. Um, you say, okay, I've got this little township or village. I can't even always make the distinction very well, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> they do that to you, right? <laughs> yeah. Wait, do you mean the town of Hempstead or Hempstead Town? Which right, exactly. Things, yeah. And you're like, no, we're going to have our own cops, our own firefighters, our own every single thing. Yeah. And that requires a lot of overlapping kinds of governance, you yeah. know? So th- my last question is this. You've reported in th- throughout the country in a lot of different places. Does reporting on Long Island strike you that you're reporting the accents are definitely New York, but is it more like reporting from Staten Island or reporting from Iowa? Is the provincialism the dominant thing, or is the fact that most of these people have New York roots the dominant thing? What's the feel like? Uh, what's the feel like? For you? I haven't voted in Iowa, but I do think that there's something specifically New Yorky about this being in the shadow or in proximity to this, you know, you know, the bastion of of like money and power and elitism, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that really the elite aspect is something that we are only now, like us in the media, are willing to start grappling with. It's like, oh, wait, we've been saying all this stuff for years now about you guys are your hicks, your rednecks, you're kind of like white trash, all these terms that are used to disparage people who are not coastal elites, right? Like you're not progressive, you know? And I think now we're seeing like tens of millions of people who are actually starting to like absorb that message, you know, they realize that the the conversation, that they're not controlling it, yeah. um, that they don't even really matter. And I think that even if Trump does lose, we're going to be like grappling with this problem of like tens of millions of disaffected and self-identified disaffected, mostly white people. Arun Venegopal, the series is United States of Anxiety. It's from WNYC Studios. It's a podcast. How many episodes are you going to do? Seven. Right. Last one drops two days after the election. All right. Then we'll know how anxious we should all be. Thanks, Arun. <laughs> Thanks, Pesca. The Gist is doing two live shows this fall. Hey, it is fall, so they're coming soon. At the end of October, we'll be in Anaheim for the Now Hear This podcasting festival. We'll be there alongside great shows like Comedy Bang Bang, The Memory Palace, and What the Fuck with Mark Marin, and two of your other favorite Slate shows, Dear Prudence and Trumpcast. We're going to be on stage with special guests Saturday, October 29th. That's Saturday, 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 October 29th. 
For more information and to buy a pass, head over to nowhearthisfest.com. Remember you say all one word. <laughs> right. Nowhearthisfest.com. And you could use the offer code GIST when you buy tickets to save 25% off general admission. And let them know I sent you. That's nowhearthisfest, all one word, dot com. Offer code GIST. And for East Coast fans, or maybe Midwesterners who happen to be in the East on Election Day, we will be doing a special viewing party on election night. It's more than a party. It's possibly a talking people off the ledge, but possibly a celebration. You know, depending on your political proclivities, Jacob Weisberg of Trumpcast will be there. We're going to announce special guests, so it'll be uh, better than just watching a cable network because we'll have our own experts to give analysis and perhaps even mental health professionals on call. November 8th, that is election night at the Bell House in Brooklyn. Tickets are on sale now. Go to slate.com slash live. The tickets are going fast, so get yours today. And now the spiel. Tonight is the vice presidential debate. It will be held in Longwood College in Farmville, Virginia. The fracas in Farmville. A heartbeat from the presidency, a whisker from irrelevancy. Tim Kaine, Mike Pence, two will enter, one will leave, and then the other will leave, and then they'll probably shake the hand of the moderator and hug their families. Mrs. Pence, by the way, owns a small business called That's My Towel, which are little charms you attach to towels, so that when you have a pool party, you won't mistake your towel for someone else's towel. That is cute. Donald Trump's wife's naked photos were on the cover of the New York Post. If after that naked photo session, she needed to cover herself with a towel, Melania could have been sure that it was the right towel had she only used Karen Pence's towel solution. Tim Kaine's wife, Ann Holton, was Virginia's Secretary of Education until her husband was brought onto the ticket. Now, over in New Hampshire, the ladies aren't merely getting naked or inventing towel sorting mechanisms to dry the naked or resigning from important posts. No, they're running for Senate. Kelly Ayotte is already the state senator. Maggie Hassan is the state's governor and wants Kelly Ayotte's job. They debated last night, and Senator Ayotte was asked. The president of the United States is obviously an aspirational figure, one who is our role model uh, and an individual who stands for ideals on a world stage. Would you tell a child to aspire to be like Donald Trump? I would tell a, a child to uh, absolutely aspire, uh, certainly to, to be their best and to be president and to seek to run for the presidency. Absolutely. Yeah, that wasn't the question. Let's have at it again. Again, to the question, would you tell them to be like Donald Trump? Would you point to him as a role model? Uh, I, I think that uh, certainly uh, there are many role models that we have, and uh, I, I believe he's can serve as president, and so absolutely. I uh, think that role models are important for uh, modeling roles, be they Kaiser or hamburger or buns or lobster rolls like are available here in the great state of New Hampshire. And I are uh, there are, of course, different kinds of models. There are model trains, model planes, and those could be fruitful endeavors. But yeah, absolutely Trump. Later, Ayotte's campaign issued a statement saying the senator misspoke. That is clear. But I want to point to another part of the debate and suggest that maybe Maggie Hassan didn't cover herself with glory. At issue, refugees from Syria coming to New Hampshire. I believe that since the summer, there have been six people at least that have come in through this way into New Hampshire. That number may have gone up since then. Do you believe that none of them pose a threat to the state of New Hampshire? 
Six? Six? Hassan began her answer by assuring everyone in New Hampshire that the half-dozen Syrians pose no known threat. We have had six refugees since Paris, and uh, what's important for people to know is that our homeland security folks here in New Hampshire, along with the FBI, our information analysis center, and all of our homeland security partners uh, are doing everything they can every day to make sure that we are safe. This was derided by the Republicans as dodging the question. I agree. The right answer would have been six. We're here in a Senate race and we're debating if six people, six specific people are going to attack us because of the country they're from. Someone has been taking that Skittles analogy way too seriously. There are five million Syrian refugees. Turkey has taken in two to three million of them. Germany, half a million. And yes, a few terrorists or would-be terrorists have posed as refugees. But none of the 12,000 Syrian refugees America has taken in have. And none of these six, six, that this state has so generously extended our arms towards have. Guys, Of course ISIS is going to hype their ability to infiltrate us. They want to terrorize us. They're terrorists. We've vetted these people, and we owe it to them as Americans to do what we can do to help. Can I swear they won't attack? No more than I could swear those six people in the second row won't attack. But I don't think these six, six people who can fit and afford tourists are going to threaten our way of life. Now, over in Illinois, there's another race that could flip a seat from Republican to Democrat. Mark Kirk, who suffered a stroke a few years ago and sometimes exhibits halting speech, is trailing against Army veteran and Congress member Tammy Duckworth. Duckworth lost both her legs in Iraq, represents a compelling story and a tough challenger for Kirk in this largely Democratic state. They debated, or rather, They engaged in a candidate's forum. They were sitting at a wood table before the members of the Chicago Tribune editorial board. There's one Q&A that I want to play from this. So they were both asked about where they were on 9-11-2001. There's a backstory. Kirk has long told a tale that he was with Donald Rumsfeld when the Secretary of Defense learned that the second plane hit the World Trade Center. Kirk placed himself by Rumsfeld's side the moment he knew the country was under attack. But the 9-11 Commission and other evidence shows that Rumsfeld was in a different meaning when he learned of the second plane hitting. Duckworth has also, according to a Chicago Tribune headline, quote, embellished her role. Now, by this, the paper means that Duckworth was in Scotland on the day of the attacks, but she often says that she was in command of her unit, which was the 106th Aviation Regiment at Midway. Duckworth ascribes the discrepancy as military jargon saying I was in command, not a desire to deceive. So when asked about their respective whereabouts, Duckworth began. On September 11th, I was in Scotland on vacation with my sister-in-law. Uh, as soon as we heard that the, the issue was uh, that New York was under attack and that we'd lost a flight in Pennsylvania, um, I immediately got on the phone and was on the phone with my commander. Duckworth explains how she got back on a flight Within 48 hours, as she commanded her aviation unit, it represented often the only aircraft in the sky patrolling Chicago, the city containing America's tallest building. Kirk responded by saying he didn't even understand what country she was in. And as the senator talked, Duckworth looked perplexed. She claimed to be uh, commanding her unit. uh... I was commanding my unit. I was commanding my unit. And if you've been a unit commander, you'd know you were in command of your unit regardless of whatever wherever you are, and, and I was in command of my unit. I was, I was uh, talking to my Secretary commander. Secretary Rumsfeld. He had a breakfast with several members of Congress in his uh, executive dining room there. Kirk 
Kirk recounted the breakfast and disclose eggs or French toast, but he he left the editorial board with a detail that Duckworth quickly jumped on. When the Rumsfeld breakfast ended, I uh, I uh, left, and then he back in 2004, he sent me a little a nice medal to I think assume to all the members of Congress that were with him at that breakfast. Uh, and I walked out to my car and drove back to the office. I had a budget committee meeting there. I, I, I have no memento from Secretary Rumsfeld for 9-11. The only memento I have is this Purple Heart pin right here. Oh, my God. Now, overall, Duckworth spoke twice as much as Kirk did. It was unclear if that was a function of her prolixity or his incapacity or a little of both or maybe some strategy. We should say that Kirk has no plans to do any televised debates, even though he currently trails by 14 points in the latest polls. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Mary Wilson knows that roles are not necessarily acceptable on models, except Peter Paul Rubin's models, who uh, used to uh, be fed roles. Chris Berube, in his role as producer, models himself, uh, so to speak, on the uh, executive producer Steve Lichtai, who notes that role models are tricky, but mole riddles instead of role models, that's something we could get behind, right? What did the mole say when seven other moles showed up to his party uninvited? The mole the merrier. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, has issued a statement clarifying Steve Lichtai's joke as a misspeakment. The gist, we would absolutely encourage anyone who is or aspires to be a child or to no one who wants to become a president absolutely to do so. And we would recommend that any senator who wants to stay as such to stay the hell away from answers like this. Oomperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.